Welcome to Sound Solutions, a series of free audio tapes produced by Braille Institute of America. The tape you are listening to and all the others in the series provide practical information to adults and their families who are dealing with sight loss. The professional staff and many of the students at Braille Institute collaborated to provide the information, tips, and practical solutions to living life independently in spite of sight loss. As you listen to Put Laughter Back in Your Life, think about the ways that you can make humor and laughter a part of your life. Remember that the goal is to discover ways to live life as independently as possible. We believe you can do it. The renowned 19th century Scottish historian and philosopher Thomas Carlyle said, True humor springs not more from the head than from the heart. It is not contempt, its essence is love. A sense of humor is one of the most important senses you can have. Numerous books and articles have been written about the role of humor in a person's health and well-being. Medical research has even been conducted confirming the value of humor in the healing process. When we laugh, the brain releases chemicals known as endorphins, which act as muscle relaxers, pain relievers, and enhance the immune system. The idea is to activate those endorphins. To do that, you need to laugh. Most of us are born with a sense of humor, but it often gets lost when life hands us difficult situations. Having lost the sense of sight, for example, you can use humor to help meet the challenges you face by lightening the burden of your daily routine. One thing you can do is to recall those funny times in your life when something silly happened. Remember how good it felt to laugh? If your personal darkness has taken humor out of your life, it's time to put it back. Laughter can truly take you out of yourself and lift your spirits when they most need lifting. Steve Allen, one of the foremost humorists of our day, author of more than 50 books and more than 6,000 songs and creator of The Tonight Show, has graciously donated his time and talent to talk to you about his favorite topic, humor. It's now Braille Institute's privilege to introduce Steve Allen. Sit back, enjoy this tape, and don't hesitate to laugh. It'll feel good. You're walking along the street, or you're at a party, or else you're alone and then Hi folks, I'm Alan, Steve, or at least that's who the Braille Institute people think I am, although you may know me as Steve Allen. So without further ado, and I don't, uh, I've been asked to talk to you about putting laughter back into your life. Now why would Braille Institute think that Steve Allen was the authority to talk to you on this subject? Oh, could it be that I've been in the comedy field for over 50 years? Uh, I created the original Tonight Show. I've written several books on humor. Uh, they're, well, countless books, some people say, but they can't count any very well. Anyway. I've starred in Gone with the Wind. I just said that to see if you're paying attention. Obviously, I did not star in Gone with the Wind. But you're not going to hold it against me that Vivian Lee beat me out for the part, are you? For guys' sakes. Anyway, the truth of the matter is, I was just very fortunate to grow up in a family where we actually viewed the world in a, in a humorous way. Believe me, things were not any easier for us than other people, but the attitude my family took taught me to see humor in the life around me and in the world. 
Life is filled with all kinds of events and activities,、uh, some of which may seem mundane, others might even appear downright depressing, if that's how you choose to react to them. What I'm going to try to do is show you a different approach, one that's not only helped me make it through some rough times, yes, even I've had some bumpy roads, but I've also gotten millions of people in the audiences to laugh an hour or two a week, even when our country was going through some pretty rough times. You、uh, remember some of those rough times, do you? <laughs> and you saw my show and laughed. Well, isn't that nice? You're my kind of audience. Many months ago, oh, 123 months to be exact. For those of you who aren't good with numbers, that's 10 years ago.、Uh, anyway, that helps date me. And believe me, my wife Jane doesn't approve of anybody dating me, and I can't blame her. Anyway, that long ago, I wrote a book called How to Be Funny, in which I set down some simple guidelines on how to see the world in a humorous way. But before we talk about some of those ideas,、uh, I need to add this disclaimer: these guidelines are only guaranteed for three years or thirty-six thousand laughs in your life, whichever comes first. After that, you're on your own. But、uh, since life has only gotten funnier to me over the years, I thought I'd share some of these ideas with you. Why? Oh, I don't know. Call me old-fashioned. Call me generous. Call me Steve. Call me anything. Just don't call me collect. I thought I would share these thoughts with you for one simple reason: they work. How do I know they work? You notice I'm doing your lines too. <laughs> anyway, really, look at all the people over the years who have borrowed these ideas and never given them back. So, since almost everybody else seems to be in on my、uh, humor, I thought I'd lend it to you too and help you put laughter back into your life. Rule number one: you can't treat laughter in your life as a Oh, like an engine additive. Although, if you could, there might be a commercial that would go something like this: "Say, is your sense of humor engine running sluggish? Are you having trouble keeping up with knock-knock jokes? Well, the makers of Humorlean have added Punchlean Supreme to take the knock out of your knock-knock jokes. Knock-knock, who's there? <laughs> well, you can fill in the rest if you know any good knock-knock jokes. But learning jokes is not what it's all about. All you have to do." Is take things a little less seriously, and you're already on the way to putting laughter back into your life. By the way, I personally guarantee this laughter stuff works. The last time I saw my doctor, he told me to laugh two times and call him in the morning. At this point, I'm glad he asked me to laugh. He used to ask me to cough. That's for you vets out there. Rule number two: seeing the humor in life does not necessarily involve sight. That may sound odd, given all the sight gags I used to do. But what having a sense of humor really has to do with is your mind. Plenty of people can see or hear something, but they may not perceive the humor in the situation. You need to use your most important sense—your sense of humor. I truly believe that all of us are born with this unique ability. Call it your sixth sense. <laughs> having trouble pronouncing sixth sense, aren't we all? Try to say sixth sense five times fast. I never could, but、uh, I think I now have an idea why the list of senses <laughs> was pruned down to five. Anyway, the sixth sense is your sense of humor. What I found out is that most of us don't exercise this sixth sense as often as we should, because we just don't pay enough attention to the things happening around us. We get caught up in our own problems, or we just take all of life too seriously. On my show, I used to take a camera out in the street sometimes, or out into the studio audience. 
I actually made a good part of my career in comedy out of other people's seriousness. On my show, we never laughed at these people. What we were really laughing at was ourselves. We laughed at the good old man on the street because each of us knows we've done the same thing. The man on the street was just an average guy, average person, doing average things in an awkward way, as we all do at times. Of course, I was blessed on my shows to have assembled an incredibly average group of fine performers, such as Tom Poston playing the guy who couldn't even remember his name, Don Knotts, the most nervous guy in the world, the wonderful Louis Nye, who said, Hi-ho, Steve Reno, the zany Dayton Allen, whose weekly answer, Why not? became a national catchphrase, and, of course, Bill Dana, who had to do nothing more than utter his character's name in that uh, foreign man accent of his, My name, Jose Jimenez, and everybody screamed. But uh, before I tell you one of the funniest things that happened to me, I, I see the producer for Braille Institute is holding up a card reminding me to tell you one other very important rule of laughter. When you laugh, (laughs) you need to open your mouth. You may think that's obvious, but I can't begin to tell you how many people I've seen injured by not following the simple rule, and they injured themselves. If at any point, therefore, during the rest of this tape, or the rest of your life, for that matter, you feel a chuckle, a giggle, a guffaw, even so much as a snicker starting to well up inside of you, please... Do us both a favor and open your mouth. A laugh is not like a sneeze. You're supposed to stifle a sneeze, but let the laughs out, okay? Anyway, here's the story. One night, back in 1938, you probably remember 1938 was in all the papers at the time, it was the last year I thought at the time that the Lord was to vouchsafe to us, uh, my mother, my Aunt Margaret, we called her Mag, and I, along with several million other Americans, went through a, an experience that few, if any, people will ever be privileged to share. We were on hand when the world came to an end, and we survived it. (laughs) I know that's coming up again soon, some of you think, but you're wrong. Anyway, the occasion I'm talking about was the famous Orson Welles' War of the Worlds broadcast. I've never before told the story of my own response to that show, because I have seen the reaction of those who were not taken in by Welles' great radio drama, to those who were. And it's the standard reaction of the level-headed citizen to the crackpot. In my own defense, and in that of all the other crackpots who went squawking off into that unforgettable night like startled chickens, I offer a word of explanation. Admittedly, anybody who heard the entire Wells broadcast from beginning to end and believed a word of it should be under observation. Unfortunately, millions did not For various reasons, a great many of the listeners did not hear the first few minutes of the show. If some of these were in the mood for dance music, they accepted what a randomly discovered orchestra on the dial was playing. Maybe in those days we used to light cigarettes, picked up magazines, settled back to listen, however. In a suite on the eighth floor of the Hotel Raleigh, an ancient and run-down hostelry on Chicago's near north side that was our home that year, I happened to be lying on the floor reading a book, and feeling in the mood for some background music, I turned on our radio, fiddled with the dial until I heard some nice music, and returned to my book. In the adjoining room, Aunt Margaret and my mother were sitting on the bed playing cards. After a moment, the music was interrupted by a special flash from the CBS News Department, the authenticity of which there was not the slightest reason to doubt. 
to the effect that from his observatory, a scientist had just detected a series of mysterious explosions of a gaseous nature on the planet Mars. Now, we know today there's nobody on Mars, but we didn't know it for sure then. After this fascinating bit of intelligence, the announcer said, and now we return you to the program in progress. And the dance music was heard once more. No, uh, I ask the listener or reader, would you doubt anything Peter Jennings or Tom Brokaw told you on their evening newscast tonight? Of course not. There soon followed a series of news items, each more exciting than its predecessor, revealing that the strange explosions on Mars had caused a downpour of meteors in the general area <laughs> of Princeton, New Jersey. By this time, the music had been entirely forgotten. I had uh, cast aside my books and, sitting cross-legged by the radio, listened with mounting horror while the network news department went into action to bring America's radio listeners up-to-the-minute reports on what was transpiring in New Jersey. More meteors had landed, it seemed, and one of them, in crashing to Earth, had caused a number of deaths. CBS at once dispatched a crew to the scene, and it was not long before first-hand reports began coming in. Up to now, there was not the slightest reason for those who had tuned into the dance music to question the truth of a word of what had happened, or what had been broadcast. And this granted, there was no particular reason for being suspicious of what immediately followed. With disbelief rising in his throat, a special event CBS men on the scene near Princeton reported that one of the Martian meteors seemed to be no meteor at all, but some sort of spaceship. It actually appeared, he said, although one could scarcely believe one's ears, that this giant blob of metal, half buried in the New Jersey mud, was not a blind, inert fragment shrugged off by some burly planet hurtling through infinity. Rather, it appeared to have been manufactured somehow. Oh, yes. Bolts and hinges were in evidence. The National Guard had cordoned off the area, allowing no one near the gargantuan hulk. And uh, this, as far as one could determine, was simply a formal precaution, for it seemed clear that even if some strange form of life had made the flight from Mars inside the meteor, it could certainly not have survived the crushing impact when the weird craft plunged into the Earth. Now, by this time, my mother and Aunt Mag <laughs> were huddled around the speaker wide-eyed. The contents of the news broadcast were inherently unbelievable, and yet we had it on the authority of the Columbia Broadcasting System that such things were actually happening. But if our credulity had been strained up to now, it had yet to face the acid test. The network next presented an army officer who made a dignified plea for calm, stating that the National Guard and the New Jersey police had the situation completely in hand. He requested that motorists give the area a wide berth, and concluded with a few words conveying his complete assurance that it would be only a matter of hours until order had been restored. But it at once developed that his confidence had been badly misplaced. The network interrupted his sermon with another report from the scene, frankly emotional in nature, which confirmed the suspicions that there might be life of some kind inside the rocket. Fearful listeners were now treated to the benumbing descriptions by a patently frightened newsman of the emergence of, here comes the great part, folks, <laughs> of strange leathery creatures from the spaceship. 
Now, I suppose if one has been convinced that there is life on Mars, it matters little whether Martians be leathery, rubbery, or made of Philadelphia cream cheese. The description of grotesque monsters by this time seemed in no detail too fantastic. What was fantastic was that there were any creatures in the rocket at all. Their slavering mouths, jelly-like eyes, and the devastating fire they directed toward the soldiers who dared stand and face them were all minor, oh, almost unimportant details. And even now they're not clear in my own mind. To our horror, the National Guard troops that had been dispatched to the scene were massacred almost at once by the huge interplanetary invaders. There were several of them now, for other ships were landing. In the confusion of the battle, the network's facilities were impaired, and its man on the spot was cut off in mid-sentence. CBS, however, was equal to the occasion. Civic and government spokesmen were rushed to microphones. Dutifully and ineffectively, as it turned out, they instructed the populace not to panic. <laughs> That's funny to itself, isn't it? An airplane was sent up over the troubled area, and the network continued its blow-by-blow description from the clouds. My mother, my aunt, and I didn't wait to hear any more. We looked at each other, hardly knowing what to say. Good God, my Aunt Mag gasped, her face pale. What's going on? I don't know, I said. What do you think we ought to do? I was 16 years old at the time, I repeat. Well, there's only one thing to do, my mother responded. We can all go over to church and wait there to see what happens. She referred to the Holy Name Cathedral, not many blocks from our hotel. I don't know if that's such a good idea, I cautioned. There might be crowds. Just then we heard the word Chicago on the radio. More spaceships have been reported, a voice intoned. Observers have seen them over Cleveland, Detroit, and Chicago. Oh, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, my Aunt Mag shouted. (laughs) We'll be killed right here in this hotel. She ran back into the other room and grabbed her coat. What are you doing, Maggie? my mother asked. What do you think? Maggie replied. We can't stay here and be killed. Let's get out of here. You're right, my mother said. We'll go over to church. Who has the key to the room? Who the hell cares about locking the door, Mag said. It doesn't matter now. I was putting on my coat, still, well, too shocked to say much. Oddly enough, and this I recall quite clearly, my predominant emotion was not fear, but blank stupefaction. I remember saying, gosh, <laughs> idiotically, over and over again, and frowning, shaking my head from side to side. I couldn't believe it, and yet I had to, on the basis of years of conditioning. CBS News had never lied to me before. My Aunt Mag was still fluttering around the room. The door was now ajar, but she was like a bird that, with its cage open, doesn't know just where to fly. What are you looking for, Mother said. My glasses, Mag said, in a mixture of anger and panic. Well, you're not going to have time to read anything, Maggie, Mother said. Just get your hat. Let's get the hell out of here. If I don't need my glasses, what good is my hat? Asked my aunt. Never mind, said my mother. Let's go. They both stopped to look at me. Perhaps I was a little pale. Are you all right, my mother asked. Gosh, I said resourcefully, and we headed for the door. By this time, people all over the nation were reacting similarly. Many stayed glued to their radios and, of course, heard the reassuring conclusion of the program, but millions, like us, rushed off wildly. They had not heard the introduction to the broadcast, and they did not stay to be calmed by its finale. Police stations, newspapers, churches were badly shaken by the first wave of frightened, fleeing citizens. 
In one New Jersey town, a terrified man rushed into the First Baptist Church during evening services and announced that the end of the world was at hand. The pastor made a futile attempt to quiet his flock by leading them in a prayer for deliverance. Switchboards at radio stations from coast to coast were clogged for hours by callers, some angry, some panicky. In New York's Harlem, more than one police station was besieged by terror-stricken men and women seeking refuge. Conscience-plagued sinners all over the country began making efforts to return stolen money, uh, confess undisclosed sins, and right old wrongs. People in houses rushed into the streets, and people on the streets rushed into houses. About this time, Mr. Wells and the member of his cast, glancing toward the control room of their mid-Manhattan studio, perceived that it was crowded with policemen. They must have finished the program in a state almost as disturbed as that of many of their listeners. Needless to say, none of that was known to us at the time. Button your overcoat, Stevie, my mother said. You'll catch cold when we go out. This remark did not, at the moment, strike any of us as amusing. I buttoned my overcoat, and we hurried out. My mother and aunt ran down the hall. I followed at a slower pace, not because I was trying to maintain a shred of discretion, but because I was too stunned to move with speed. Rounding a corner, we burst suddenly upon a dignified-looking young woman holding a little girl by the hand. "'Run for your life!' my mother cried at the woman, at the same time jabbing a shaky but determined finger at the elevator button. In response, the woman looked at her with no expression whatever. "'Pick up your child and come with us!' my aunt shouted, wide-eyed. At this, the young woman drew back in alarm, evidently and reasonably concluding that she was uh, confronted by three violently deranged people who might do her physical harm. She looked at me, questioningly. "'We just heard on the radio,' I explained, "'that there's uh, something up in the sky.' The merest flicker of bemusement crossed her face, but the woman did not speak. It was clear that she was hovering between two alternatives. Alan Funt and his candid camera, not having yet been let loose upon the world, either we were a trio of incredibly inventive and determined practical jokesters, or we were insane. The third possibility, that there might actually be something up in the sky, apparently was never given serious consideration. Instead, the woman shifted her child in her arms to a more secure position, and retreated a few steps down the hall, walking backwards, <laughs> so as to keep an eye on us. But my aunt was not to accord this gesture the honor of understanding. She moved angrily toward the woman, and her right hand pointed up toward the heavens. She must have looked like a witch calling down a curse. "'You ought to get down on your knees!' she shouted like a complete nut, instead of laughing at people. "'We're going to church to pray, and that's what you ought to be doing right this minute, praying!' Before the woman could interpret this admonition, the elevator had reached our floor. A moment later, the door slid back, and the smiling face of the elevator operator greeted us. Never have I seen a smile <laughs> fade so fast. In any event, the violence with which we dashed into the elevator at once convinced the operator that all was not well. My mother's first words, I'm sure, confirmed his suspicions. "'Hurry up and take us down,' she said. "'They're up in the sky.' "'Who is?' said the man. "'How do we know who is?' my aunt shouted. "'But you'd better get out of this hotel right now while you've still got the chance.' "'Yes, ma'am,' he whispered, withdrawing completely to his corner of the elevator. 
For perhaps ten seconds he regarded us warily, holding the car control handle at full speed. Then, torn between fear and curiosity, he succumbed to the latter. "'What did you say the matter was?' he said timidly. Aunt Meg's patience was exhausted. "'How many times did you have to explain things to people?' "'They're up in the sky,' she repeated. "'Haven't you been listening to the radio?' "'No, ma'am.' "'Well, you'd better do something, let me tell you. "'The radio just said they're up over Chicago, "'so you'd better run for your life.' Now, I'm sure that if the elevator operator had been convinced that an interplanetary invasion was underway, he would have faced the challenge as bravely as the next man. But instead, <laughs> he apparently concentrated on the idea that he was cooped up in a small elevator with three dangerous lunatics. As a result, he apparently became positively petrified. Fortunately for his nervous system, the elevator arrived at the main floor at this point. He yanked the door release and shrank back against the wall as we thundered past him into the lobby. Now, though we had met with icy disbelief twice in quick succession, we were still ill-prepared for the sight that now greeted us. The lobby, which we had expected to find in turmoil, was a scene of traditional lobby-like calm. Nowhere was there evidence of the panic we had come to accept as the norm in the last few short minutes. Aggravatingly, people were lounging about, smoking cigars, reading newspapers, speaking in subdued tones, or dozing peacefully in thick leather chairs. It had been our intention to sweep through the lobby and proceed right across Dearborn Street, pausing only in the event that a sudden spaceship attack <laughs> should force us to take cover. But something about the Oh, the tranquility around the registration desk presented a challenge we did not feel strong enough to resist. Indeed, we felt it our duty to warn the unfortunate souls who thought all was well that they should prepare for ultimate disaster. The elevator man peered after us from what was now the safety of his cage as we raced up to confront the blasé desk clerk. Is something wrong? This worthy asked quietly, evidently hoping that if something were amiss, he could contain the area of alarm within his immediate vicinity. Well, replied my aunt with a contemptuous sneer, it's the end of the world, that's all that's wrong. The clerk's face was an impenetrable mask, although after a moment he permitted a faint suggestion of disdain to appear on it. I started to explain that on the radio, ah, and then... In some clear, calm corner of my mind, I heard soft sounds in the corner of the lobby. It was a radio, and the sounds were not the sort a radio should be making at a time of worldwide crisis. The sounds, as a matter of fact, were of a commercial nature. Some other announcer on some other station was extolling the virtues of a brand of tomato soup. A wave of shock <laughs> passed through me as in the instant I saw things as they really were. Turning to my mother, I began speaking very fast, explaining what I presumed had happened. It was all make-believe on the radio. For a split second she wavered, hoping yet fearing, and then for her too the ice broke. Light followed by painful embarrassment, also dawned on Aunt Mag. Like bewildered sheep, we retreated back toward the elevator, excruciatingly aware that all heads were turned toward us, that the clerk 
was now smiling at us in a frightfully patronizing way, and that never again, as long as we lived, would we be able to walk through that lobby without casting our eyes to the floor. We'll have to move out of this place, my mother said. Our next reaction upon us before we could even stagger back into the elevator was <laughs> was one of wild hilarity, bordering on hysteria. We laughed until our sides ached and tears poured down our cheeks. We fell into heavy chairs and laughed some more. And at long last we pulled ourselves together, still shrieking with laughter, and started back toward the elevator. We laughed so hard going up that I don't recall the elevator operator's reactions. I'm sure he must have assumed we were now in the hilarious stage, still nutty as three fruitcakes, but probably no longer dangerous. We spent a restless night, alternately laughing and repeating, we'll never be able to face all those people again. The next day on the way to school, I glanced at the blazing newspaper headlines at a newsstand, and I knew that we had not been alone. Well, I hope you're getting the idea by now that in order to laugh, we can't just take things at face value. Whether you're listening to the news or paying your bills, taking a walk, whatever. If you do something of an about-face, you can always find something amusing in life if you want to. Put laughter back into your life. You'd be surprised what a refreshing tonic it can be. Laughter, you know, can be infectious. So go ahead and <laughs> infect all those around you. Give it all to your friends. Let them call you the typhoid Mary of laughter if they choose to. But I give you my word, your friends won't quarantine you. Make them laugh. It's the best gift you can give somebody, especially if that somebody happens to be you. been listening to Put Laughter Back in Your Life, one of the audio tapes in the series Sound Solutions. We hope you found the information helpful for you, your family, and friends. These tapes are available free of charge from Braille Institute, a private nonprofit organization committed to eliminating blindness and severe sight loss as a barrier to the fulfillment of life. Sound Solutions was made possible by the generosity of the H.N. and Francis Berger Foundation, the Fritz B. Burns Foundation, and from thousands of individuals. If you would like more information about anything you heard in this tape, about other tapes in the series, or about Braille Institute, please call our toll-free number, 1-800-BRAILLE. That's 1-800-272-4553. Thank you for listening to Braille Institute's Sound Solutions.